Welcome to Power Views at TruthWorks Network. The Black Voice Collaborative on talk radio, on the internet, and the black screen. The best of empowerment broadcasts from across the internet. Power Views. Rebroadcasting the power. Reloading the truth at TruthWorks Network. Reloading the truth. Reloading the truth. Listen, learn, liberate radio. So 1966 with the seventh, the seventh Earl. Go for it. Now this is the castle that they built out of their Caribbean prophets. This is the third largest castle in England. When it was built, it was the second largest castle in England. It's in Harewood, outside of Leeds in Yorkshire. And this is the family home of the Earls of Harewood. This was built in the 18th century out of the Caribbean profits from slave trading and slavery. And if you go into this building, it is now a public building. You go in there, and on the left side of the basement are all of the records of the family, slave trading, slave owning, slave investing, all of their Caribbean records are in the basement of this building. They have over 15 tons of documents detailing how a poor white family came to the Caribbean involved in slave trading, slave financing, plantation development, slave owning, and amassed the largest fortune in Great Britain. And now, as you can see, we can go forward. You might ask yourself, well, how did they, next slide, how did they marry into the royal family? Well, there you go. The sixth earl in 1922 marries the queen's daughter. You do not marry into the royal family unless you bring a lot of bucks with you. And the sixth earl, a billionaire, buys into the royal family by marrying the king's daughter. So here is a poor white family that became a slave-owning a slave owning family, a Caribbean plantation magnate, then move into the British aristocracy, and then marry into the royalty, and now they are descendants to the throne of Great Britain. Not a bad story for a poor white boy 300 years ago, who is now seventh in line to the, royal, to the throne of Great Britain. Not bad. But this is how the wealth of slavery empowered the British elite, empowered the royal family. And it's important for all of this to know this, because when you imagine the Caribbean slave system and what happened to our ancestors, do not understand this as a marginal economic activity. This enslavement of African peoples became the basis of the rise of the British aristocracy as an important commercial force in the world in the 18th century, empowered the royal family, empowered the elites and all of their corporations. Without the enslavement of the Caribbean peoples, none of this would have been possible at that level of development. Please go forward. And so this book I have written have sought to bring all of this historical information into a sequence, but also to say that the purpose of the conversation is to see where we are today with nation building. In other words, it is always important to know the history. But it's more important to know what are the lessons of the history, what are the implications of the history, and what are the consequences for politics, for society, and for economic life 
of the history. What does it mean? What does it tell us? We know that at the moment, we are into a very difficult moment of rebuilding the Caribbean economies. And my own judgment, I think we have done reasonably well in the last 40 years in building Caribbean nations. I have a very acute sense of the poverty that existed in this region in the 1940s and 50s. I believe that on the whole, our leaders across the Caribbean since the independence process has moved us a considerable journey. I think we have moved a considerable journey. When I hear the stories from my parents and my grandparents, I understand the movement that we have made. But we would have made an even greater movement had not for the legacies of slavery that we are still grappling with at multiple levels. And so that is what the lessons of history is. How do we now deal with the concept of reparations within the concepts of the next stage of our development? This is about development. It's about the eradication of poverty in our villages. It's about the lack of infrastructure in our communities. It's about the healthcare problems that are ripping through the poor people of the Caribbean. It's about the lack of appropriate investments in education and healthcare. It's about agricultural backwardness in the rural community. All of those legacies that are, have entrapped us in poverty, we are still trying to deal with those issues. Reparations is about confronting those legacies and dealing with them the best we can. Now, we have heard a number of conversations of late that some of our economies have run into difficulty. Some of them have been defeated. Some of them have been undermined. I have my own views about what happened, for example, to the banana industry and the Windward Islands and how the Europeans dealt with that and how they have, how they have refused, in fact, to participate in the development of the agricultural economy in the Caribbean. We have conversations about failed states. We are hearing about the failure of Caribbean leaders to take our communities out of the poverty that we are still dealing with. We are having conversations that Caribbean peoples are not culturally energetic and ready for development. That we are not ready to take responsibility for our development. And that this long 21st century ahead of us, and the 20th century was for us an important century. It was a century in which we got civil rights and human rights, the right to vote. We got the right to have sovereignty of our nations. All of these were 20th century achievements. But now we have a long century ahead of us. The question is what are going to be the achievements of the 21st century? What will be the objectives of the next two generations of younger people? And what are our obligations to empower the younger generations now to strengthen them to achieve goals in the 21st century? And this is where the reparatory issues come into being. And we know all of this. We have been talking about it for the longest while. Next slide, please. Now, when the world, when the world sits down the Western world, the European world, when they sit down to discuss the Caribbean, Africa, when they look at their past and the enslavement of our peoples, the victimization of our peoples, the destruction of Africa's potential, and of course the consequences that followed slavery, the apartheid that was put in place in the Caribbean after slavery, 
they speak about the time, time has come to move on. And they, they discuss moving on in the context of certain key words. And these are the words that they use. Let's, let's be progressive. Let's move on. Let's have progress. Let's have equity. Let's have democracy, equality. Time for healing. Time for atonement. We must have redemption and forgiveness. The time has come for reconciliation. These are the key words, justice. These are the key words that the conversation takes place about the legacies of slavery. But if you look at those words very carefully, and these are all very important words because these are the key words in Western civilization that speak to human progress. But there's a word that is missing from there. There is one word that is missing from this dialogue. And that word is what we call the elephant in the room. There's an elephant in the room. There's a word that nobody wants to say in the Western world. There's a word that they do not want to use. But without that word, all of the previous words are hollowed. Without that word, the justice, the forgiveness, the atonement, the equality, the progress, the reconciliation, without that word, all of those other words are hollowed. Compromise. And that word, of course, is reparations. Next slide, please. We are here in St. Vincent. And you have your legacy to deal with. At the height of slavery on this island, some of the leading members of the British Parliament owned your ancestors. Most of your ancestors were owned by some of the leading members of the British Parliament. And it's important for the parliamentarians who are here tonight to see themselves in this tradition that these were the men and the constituencies which they represented in the British Parliament. These were the men who as politicians in the House of Lords and the House of Commons were the owners of your ancestors. And that conversation has to take place. It's important to know all of this, how your parliament is linked to their parliament now and in the past. Next slide, please. We have the comrade who is in our parliament today in this country against the background of those gentlemen who sat in the House of Lords and who own your ancestors. And you have a prime minister who is now dealing with the offspring of those persons who were owned by members of the British Parliament. That puts him in a very peculiar relationship to the House of Commons. Because he is now dealing with the consequences which the British members of Parliament have left in St. Vincent. He now has to deal with the consequences of British parliamentarians in this society over that period of time. And now we have to begin a conversation about how do we repair the damage. And that is what reparations is. How do you repair the damage that has been done to a people? There is no simple answer to repairing damage. You have done it. How do you repair it is a complex issue, but it requires certain issues about justice for the poor. It's about the development process in which the poor are entrapped in the Caribbean today 
150 years after emancipation. And, and always, always bear in mind the numbers. On the one hand, you had slavery for 400 years. On the other hand, you've had freedom for 180 years. We are trying to undo in 180 years the damage that was done in 400 years. So you might very well say that we're not out of the woods yet. 400 years of one, 180 of the other, the numbers don't quite match. We are still dealing with the legacy of the 400 years. And it will take us a very, very long time to do it. But we are here and we are in the second stage of nation building and we are speaking about it. Reparations therefore says crimes have been committed. As a society, we have reached a level of maturity, awareness, of consciousness that we are now ready for that conversation. We might not have been ready 10 years ago, 20 years ago, but we have evolved to the stage where we are now willing to have a conversation about this history. And we also know some things about this history. All across the world, this conversation has taken place. The Caribbean is just a part of a global conversation. The Europeans colonized the world. They inflicted slavery, indentureship, native genocide upon three quarters of the world's population, and they enriched themselves in the process. The whole world is now saying, and the Caribbean is a part of that world, we need to speak about this past because we are charting the future for our peoples, but we need to deal with this legacy as a part of that conversation about development. And we know that weak people have not received reparations. When we examine the last hundred years and the last hundred cases of reparations, we know one thing. Weak people, disorganized people, confused people, people who have doubts about themselves, people who have no self-confidence, people who have no commitment to themselves and their past and to their children do not get reparations. You will raise the question and it will stoops at you. You do not get it. Just recently, I was following the case in India where in 1919, the British Army massacred a large number of Indian people and took their land. They wanted the land, and there was a colony. The British government wanted the land, they took the land, massacred the people, pushed them off. The Indian government has now reached a stage, and as you know, India has now emerged as a nation in the world with authority, with self-confidence. The Indian nation is now becoming confident and they have said, we wish to have a reparatory conversation about this massacre, the massacre of Amritsar. The British Prime Minister has gone there, have apologized to the people of Amritsar, have offered atonement and reparations for the massacre of those Indian peasants at Amritsar. But the British government did the same thing in Jamaica at Morant Bay in 1865. The poor people looking for land to produce food squatted on land that was owned by the crown. The crown sent in the army and shot down the people, massacred them. The Caribbean hasn't yet 
reached a stage where it says we need to have an apology for that and reparations for that because you cannot massacre people and walk away from it. It has to be settled. It has to be healed. Communities have to be healed. So in India, they have gone forward. In the Caribbean, we have not gone forward. And it's, it's all, again, about confidence of a people. Confidence. Next slide. In Durban, when these matters were first discussed in 2001, the British government, led by Tony Blair, made it very clear, very clear to us. We will not discuss reparations with the Caribbean. We have no apology to make to the Caribbean. We have no apology to make for those peoples who are still dealing with the consequences of enslavement. We will not apologize for it. We will offer a statement of regret, but we are going to offer no apology. And I want you to know the distinction between a statement of regret and an apology. A statement of regret is a social or ethical response to a crime or to an offense. An apology is taking responsibility for it. Let me give you a simple definition. If I walked into this building and stepped on the gentleman's toe and he screamed to hell, I can say, sir, I regret stepping on your toe. And the matter is closed. If I say to the gentleman, sir, I apologize to you for stepping on your toe. By offering the apology, I have now taken responsibility that in the event that I have broken your toe, in the event that you might be a diabetic with circulation problems and you might have to have surgery, I am taking responsibility for that. I am taking responsibility for what I have done to you. If I don't want to take responsibility, I give you a statement of regret and walk away. That's the distinction. And so the British government have said to us, we will give you a statement of regret, but we will not apologize to you. Because in their judgment, they have done nothing wrong. Now, it was clear to us in Durban that the British government had taken a strategic decision about reparations. And that decision they took was based on two assumptions. One, the Caribbean people do not really want reparations. In fact, one of the British members of parliament, if you read the Hansard, actually said, well, there is one thing about black folks that I know from my years of association with them in Africa. They are very forgiving people and they carry no malice. They are very forgiving. They don't want no reparations. So this reparations thing is not going to go anywhere because black people have no interest in this history. Then the second thing they said was, the older people in the Caribbean are carrying a grudge about colonization and slavery. But the younger generations have no interest in history. And all we have to do is wait out the time 
and the younger people will come into being and they will abandon all of this because young people in the Caribbean have no interest in history. And the further we go into the future, the more the subject will die because the younger ones are into music and fete and party and dance hall and they're not going to deal with this. So let us sit them out and let this movement die a natural death. That is what they are banking on. In other words, they are banking on the failure of the Caribbean educational system to empower a younger generation with historical knowledge. And importantly, commitment to improving their societies. So, this is what we were faced with. The British government looked at us across the table and said, well, you know, slavery was not, legal, was not illegal. We committed no crime. At the time that slavery was practiced, it was legal. Well, it was legal because they made it legal. You know, one of the, one of the features of world history is that powerful nations can walk into the societies of weaker nations pass laws and change their entire course of history. Because the British government said slavery was not illegal because we legalized it. But critically, international law makes that provision. If you commit these crimes against humanity, you cannot hide behind your laws. If you could hide behind your laws when you commit crimes, the Nazis who committed those atrocities against the Jewish peoples and against the black people and against the Africans as well as the gypsies. I know people tend to believe that it was only the Jewish people who were marched into the gas chambers. But they marched the blacks in the gas chambers too. There was a wonderful exhibition at the Schwamberg Center in New York four years ago of the thousands of African peoples who were marched into the gas chambers under Hitler's regime. The expression was blacks, gypsies, and Jews. But the International Court said, you cannot hide behind your laws because the Third Reich said, we legalize the gas chambers. The German state made it legal for the government to do this. The international community says, no, you cannot hide behind your laws when you commit these atrocities. And that principle has remained today. The British government cannot say we legalized slavery and therefore it was legal. Neither can they say that it was a long time ago. And this is what they said to us. This was a long time ago. You're asking us to discuss something that happened a long time ago. International law makes provision for something called remoteness. This is not remote. It's within living memory. There are people in the Caribbean today whose great-grandparents were slaves. I grew up in a household with a great-grandmother in her 90s who would tell us about slavery. I grew up hearing about slavery from my great-grandmother. It wasn't remote. It was in my household. We heard about it. People spoke about it. It's part of the culture of our domestic lives. It wasn't a long time ago. It's very much present so we cannot use the remoteness concept. Then, of course, we have the issue about reparations. Move, take the reparations issues off the agenda. We will give you aid. So you can choose 
whether the strategy going forward in your international relations is built around the concept of aid or whether it's built around the concepts of mutual empowerment for development. Where many of you, many of you in this, in this country, I'm sure, I'm sure that when St. Vincent and the Grenadines became an independent nation, I am sure that many of you were living in communities without running water in your households, without paved roads in your communities, I'm sure, and I'm sure many of you ask the question, why is it here in the middle of the 20th century that we are living in villages without proper roads, without running water, with one little school per parish or whatever it is, and you took that for granted? That is not the best you could do. That is what you were expected to accept. That is what you were expected to accept because a low value was placed on you because of the history, and you got no running water, you got no roads. And you live in those communities after 300 years. All of that is based on what you call a value assessment. What value have we placed on you, and what are you worth within the context of the British Empire? And so, these are the arguments that the British government has rolled out in the last 10 years. It was no crime. We legalize it, too. Colonization is over. Take responsibility for yourself. Racism is in the past. Now you have black governments. Get on with it. History is irrelevant. Stop whining and think of the future. We enslave you. We regret, but no apology. Now, we are developed... And we are developed because we have a culture. Now go and get a culture. If you go and get a culture, you will get development. You are poor because you have no culture. There is enough wealth in the Caribbean that you can manage to remove your poverty. Yes, the native population was wiped out, but it's not our fault. It was survival of the fittest. And we, the Europeans, are the fittest. You were not fit, you got wiped out. We are in the European Union now, and the Caribbean is behind us. The slavery and the Caribbean is behind us. We have given you independence. We have cut the cord. We are now in the European Union. We have no responsibility for you. Those were the arguments that we encountered coming out of the British state. But this book says, not so fast. Slow down, not so fast. You have a responsibility in the Caribbean that you have to honor. You have a case to answer. You have a case. You have a moral, a political, and a legal case to answer. You cannot commit these crimes against these people. Enrich yourselves out of their labor. Walk away and leave them in poverty. No, 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 no. You have to come back to this place and participate in the removal of some of these legacies that you have left behind. And I can tell you, no Caribbean government, no Caribbean government will have the resources in the next 30 to 40 years to deal with these legacies. 
you will not have the resources to deal with these consequences. In fact, poverty is increasing in the Caribbean because the Western world has adopted a different approach towards these societies. The governments will not have the resources to uproot the poverty that has been left behind. They have done a commendable job thus far. The resources will not be there to attack it frontally and remove it. The British government has a responsibility to come back and participate in this conversation about development. And this is what reparations is. Reparations is not about people standing around on street corners and getting handouts. And bear in mind that the British government and the other European governments have launched a campaign to discredit the concept of reparations. They know they have to pay it. They know that they have to deal with it sooner or later. But what do you do in the first place? You discredit the concept. Oh, reparations is about black people standing around on street corners expecting handouts. And that is how they define it. They want you to define it that way because once it's defined that way, it becomes ridiculous. That is not what reparations is. It begins with you saying we have committed a crime against you and for this we apologize. And then the consequences, we will participate in dealing with them with you. So it is about partnership. It is not about conflict. It is not about confrontation. It's about helping the British people to rise up to their full potential as a nation. I can tell you, I have spent maybe 20 years of my life in Britain. I went to high school in Britain. My parents were part of that migration to Britain in the 50s to work in the factories. One minute I was in a plantation village in Barbados, the next minute I was in the city. I was a part of that migration to work in the British factories. I went to high school there, I went to university there. My family is there. Most of my family are British citizens. I like Britain. I spend most of my summers in Britain. I like England. But I would like to help Britain to get over this, to come and be the nation that it can be. And believe me, the people in Britain walking the streets are becoming very concerned that their government is not doing the right thing. Increasingly, the British public are saying, what we did in the Caribbean and Africa was wrong. We would like our governments to go and deal with that on our behalf. And increasingly the British people, the British citizens, the students, the people in the streets are saying no. We don't want to be seen around the world as an oppressive nation. We want our government to go and deal with these issues. And this is how the Mau Mau people in Kenya were able to have this matter settled a few months ago. Because the British government hid the information about the atrocities committed in Kenya. The documents were removed from the archives and hid in a private archive. Thank God they have honest people on the planet. Some people said no. No. We do not want our nation to behave like this and expose the information. Which then allowed the court to say since the government has taken action to, re to conceal this information, there is a case to answer. And the courts ruled that the government should have a conversation in the court. Because the citizens in Britain 
And while I was there, students were on Facebook. They were having meetings on the campuses. Students were rallying around saying, no, we want our governments to give those African people's reparations. So the British government found itself surrounded by younger people, students, NGOs, the church, who were all demanding that the government should pay reparations. So do not think for a moment that this is a conversation only with the British government. This is a conversation with British society. And British society increasingly is on your side that this conversation must take place. I know that because I have given lectures across British universities, dozens of them in the last five years. And the people are saying, yes, we are with the Caribbean people on this matter. And we know the history. We know the history. The genocide against the native people here in St. Vincent. It's not for me to discuss that with you. You know your national history. You know the history of the Garifuna here. You know the history of the black Caribs. You know the history of the Kalanago people on this island. The heroic struggle all the way into the end of the 18th century. The massacre of the people in this society who stood up for their rights who held on to their land, who were dispossessed of their land by an imperial government, deported from their societies. These are all crimes that have to be atoned. These are all matters that the British government has to take responsibility for. And those issues are important. I trace in the book the details of this case. You know, Barbados, when the English arrived in Barbados, to set up a colony in 1625. Do you know that Barbados was the only island in the entire Caribbean that was empty? Empty, no people on it. The British arrived and found an empty island. Blank, no people. But they said it was filled with houses. Here is an island filled with houses. Thousands of villages and little huts everywhere, but no people. Because the native people of Barbados, the same Kalanago peoples, unable to resist the Spanish and the Portuguese who were raiding the island because it's a flat island, they couldn't fight against them. They abandoned Barbados and moved into St. Vincent and Dominique and Grenada and St. Lucia. So many of those indigenous peoples in the Wenwood Islands were also from Barbados. They couldn't survive in Barbados. So they abandoned their villages and they moved into the Wenwards where they could resist. Where they had a fighting chance. Where they had a fighting chance. And it's interesting because in the book I describe one of the meetings with the Barbados government and the native population in St. Lucia. The Carib chiefs came from Dominica, they came from Grenada, they came from St. Vincent, and they met in St. Lucia with the governor of Barbados. And one, one of the issues they discussed in that treaty, in the 1650s, one of the issues in the treaty is that we want permission to return to Barbados because that was part of our home. We want to go unmolested back to the island of Barbados because they had abandoned it. They wanted to go back to visit the island that they once lived in. And that is the nature of this history. But the crimes were committed against those peoples. Then we know the issues about the prostitution of black women. 
the critical feature of a crime against humanity. You cannot prostitute people into a system for 300 years and walk away. During the Japanese war in Korea, the Japanese brought thousands of Korean women into the army camps to work as sex slaves, to work as prostitutes to the Japanese army. The Korean people have now brought reparations charges against the Japanese government for the prostitution of Korean women. The Japanese government have just paid billions of yen into a fund called the Korean Women's Development Fund as reparations for the prostitution of Korean women during the Korean War. All of these crimes all over the world, one by one they are being repaired, but people have to be committed for justice for their society. Black women all across the Caribbean were prostituted. When you bought a woman on the market, you go down Kingston, the slave market, you buy a woman, you're buying not only her labor, you're buying access to her body, her fertility, her sexuality. You're buying access to everything. It's a product. She had no right to control her fertility or her maternity. Those were products that you bought. You have a right to her. You could not rape a black woman because Africans were classified as property. You cannot rape property. In law, it's your property. You cannot rape your property. It's your right. It's your right to have access. But that was the regime for 300 years. The right to the sexuality of the black woman. And the system of slavery was based upon the fertility and the maternity of the black woman. The whole system of slavery was based on the black woman. By that, what I mean is, it, slavery passed on through the female line. Slavery did not pass on through the male line. It passed on through the female line. The offspring of an enslaved woman was born into slavery. A child took the status of slavery at birth from the mother, not the father. It is the mother who was the conduit. The black woman was a conduit through which slavery passed from generation to generation. She was targeted for that purpose. If you go into the archives of the Caribbean, you will see several children born of mixed race. If the father was a white man, the mother was an enslaved black woman, the child was born a slave. If, however, the father was a slave man and the mother was white, the child was born free. Because a white woman could not give birth to a slave child because the status of the child came from the status of the mother. So white women could not give birth to a slave child. So even when the father was a slave, and there were many cases we have in the archives of the father being a slave, the child was born free. Now, of course, you could see the problem with that. The, the, the slave owners did not wish to see much of that. They didn't wish to see many of these colored children being born black slave fathers and white free mothers. And the Barbados archives is a fascinating census 1715, the second census of the island. And in that census, in the parish of St. Philip, there are 14 mulatto children whose parents, the mother was white, fathers were enslaved Africans. And these children were colored and classified in the, in the census as free. Now, 
The moment that was realized by the census takers, the government took a decision to stamp out that kind of behavior, and therein the records began to show the castration of black men. Therein, the government of Barbados made a law that any such enslaved man who is found guilty of lying with a white woman shall be castrated. And thus you begin to see in the records castration of men. John castrated, Harry castrated, Kojo castrated, held up, penis cut off. Because there in the records begin to show that kind of history. Now, the British government built this system. The system did not evolve out of the sky. This system was built by the British government for purposes of taxation, for revenue generation, for profits, for trade, for finance. This was a business enterprise which was legislated by the British state. British government built it. This is a, this is a system crafted by the British parliamentary structure. They are responsible for the management of it, and they are responsible for the defense of it. It is a British political construct. Well, we all know of the case of the Zong massacre. This is a critical case that all students in commercial law should study, or I would wish to study, the Zong massacre. This is a classic case that brings forward now the reparations issue of the defining of people as property. The Zong was a slave ship on its way from West Africa to Jamaica with 300 Africans on board. Normal, normal slave ship. It took about eight weeks for a slave ship to get from West Africa to the Caribbean. And there were two strategies. If you were a slave trader, there were two methods to bring your slaves to the market. One was called tight packing, one was called loose packing. Loose packing and tight packing are methodologies which the slave traders argued about which one was better. Tight packing says if a ship has a capacity of 400, you jam 500 in. Jam them in and head across the Atlantic, top speed with the wind. If you lose 10% or you lose 20%, you get to the market, you still have an 80% cargo, you make a fortune. Each one is costing you about two pounds per head and you can sell them for 25 30 so you recruit them at two pounds you put them on the ship jam them in get across eight weeks and if you get to market you make a killing another strategy was loose packing if a ship had a capacity for 400 you put in 250 give them a little more elbow room don't pack them in so tight and hope that you reduce the mortality fuel would die you get to the market and you still make a killing so the slave traders would debate which method was better for profitability. The Zong decided, Captain Collinwood decided, on this voyage, he was going tight packing. So he packed in 300 and a 200 capacity ship, heading across the Atlantic, got in the middle of the Atlantic, and ran out of wind. Because these are, these are sail ships. Captain error, navigational error, lost the breeze, the ship stalled. And here he's stuck in the middle of the Atlantic, can't move. No wind. He has a strategic decision to make. What to do? He is running out of food and he is running out of water. He took 
the logical business decision. Throw them in the ocean, dump them all out, let the sharks eat them, turn the ship around, go back to England and claim the insurance. Because it's property. Claim the insurance. And that's what Captain Collinwood did. Threw them off, back to England and claimed the insurance. Sharks consume two or three hundred of them. <coughs> this case becomes famous because he claimed the insurance. The insurance company began to question the claim. The insurance company said, we want more documentation. I mean, give us proof that you had no choice. Present the documents to show that you were out of water, you were out of food, you had no choice. Give us the documentation before we pay the claim. The case became controversial, and it went to the high court. It went all the way to the high court. And thus, the famous ruling of Judge Mansfield in the Zone Massacre. Judge Mansfield ruled, this is not a case of murder. This is a straightforward case of property insurance. And he added, it would have made no difference had there been so many cattle or horses on the ship, the result would have been the same. Because on that ship was property and not human beings. Therein lies the British court. The British court, the judiciary of Great Britain, and its own legal structure that black people are not human beings. Therein lies the charge of reparations, because to deny a people their human identity is a crime against humanity. And that is a case that the British judiciary, on behalf of the British state, established the principle once and for all that African peoples are not human. Well, we know how all of this impacted on St. Vincent. Keep going. We know all this interesting image of the indigenous peoples who were fighting their resistance and their struggles. We know the story of Chateauet. We know all of this dispossession and the crimes committed against the people on this island. We know that history. But herein comes now the critical issue, emancipation. Emancipation. Who is going to get reparations at emancipation? The slave owners insisted if you are going to free our property, you pay us reparations. And we want reparations at the full market value of the Africans. We want reparations at the full market value. Every black person in the Caribbean put the market value on them, and we want compensation at the full market value. And here is an interesting cartoon in the British press at the time. The politicians, the merchants, the judges, the financiers, all the leaders of British society are lining up for their reparations. Because these are the people who own the slaves. The judges, the financiers, the business people, the politicians, these are the people who own the slaves. And they are lining up for their reparations. The Africans are jumping for joy because they are free. But they're not getting reparations. They're getting something called freedom, no reparations. And this cartoonist captured precisely the conversation in the 1820s. Who get reparations, who don't get? That was a brilliant cartoon from the 1820s that depicts the conversation. But 
now we now have these images to deal with, these legacies. What are we going to do about these images now? The black woman whose child is taken from her and sold? The separation of the black family? Child sold down to one colony, mother sold somewhere else, the father sold somewhere else? That legacy, how do we deal with family now? And to say black people that our family values are weak, the fact of the matter is it has taken us from emancipation to rebuild family values, to rebuild the family system, because for 300 years, family was illegalized, family was destroyed. Continue. But this was the kind of family black people were asked to be a part of. Be the servant and the maid of the white family. That is your family. Keep going. This is the European conception of family. The beautiful white woman, her beautiful child, and the black servant. This is the wet nurse who will, who will nurse that baby, who will raise it, take it for a walk in the morning, make sure it's healthy. That was how the Europeans imagined their family. That was the role assigned to her. This was how white men imagined themselves, to be carried around by black men in this way. Continue. Beautiful images. These are images from slavery. This is an image... This is an image from Haiti. This is how a white Haitian saw himself being carried around the plantation by black men. These are images that are embedded in the culture. Keep going. This is what you call a gibbet. For those of you who don't know what a gibbet is, a gibbet is a cage. If an African was found to have resisted, to have run away, committed an offense against slavery, he was placed or she was placed in a gibbet. A gibbet is a cage where the, you are put in there and you are allowed to starve. The birds and the rats would eventually eat you, but you are hung in this cage on the plantation. All plantations had them. These are standard images. Black people, to get their freedom, had to confront a white man with a gun. If you want freedom, confront with a gun, please. If you run away, of course, the dogs came after you. We know that all across the Caribbean, Black people were chased by dogs in pursuit of their freedom. These are the images. And artists across the world captured this history. This is one of those beautiful images by a Dutch artist who came to the Caribbean and captured what he saw in the Caribbean. Black people trying to get their freedom being chased by dogs. These were images captured by artists. The question now is, why are we focusing on the British government? Well, we are focusing on Britain because Britain was the largest owner of slaves in the Caribbean in the 1830s at emancipation. The British made the most money out of slavery and the slave trade. They got the lion's share. And importantly, they knew how to convert slave profits into industrial profits. You know, some of you, when you get a bonus or a little lump sum of money, you might take home your money and put it in a shoebox and put it under the bed. Right? And you know, women could hide their money in places that nobody can find. And you can hide, a, you can hide your lump sum of money. But if you hide your cash at home, what you are doing, you are depriving the banking system of that cash, which I can now go and borrow to start my business. So if you hide your money in the house, the bank is not going to have the money to allow me to borrow that money and pay the interest to start my business. The British knew how to convert the
the profits from the Caribbean, put the money through the banking system, and convert the Caribbean profits into capital for the industrial development. That was the success of the British. And thus, a proliferation of banks appeared all across Britain, taking the profits from the slave trade, taking the profits from slavery, and allowing other people to borrow that money for industrial development. That was the success of the British. The Spanish took the money from the Caribbean, put it under their bed. And the Spanish who owned the whole of the New World for 200 years, the biggest colonizer is now one of the poorest nations in Europe because they did not understand the art of converting gold and silver and cash into capital. You convert it by putting it in the financial system, allowing other people to borrow it, convert it into commercial capital. The Spanish did not understand that. The British were the masters at it. That's why they became the first industrial nation. And some of the wealthiest men in the world were Caribbean slave owners. This gentleman here, William Beckford, who became a legend in the world in the 18th century, owned thousands of enslaved Africans. The Beckford family in Britain today is one of the richest families. In fact, William Beckford had actually decided that not only will he build his own castle, but he'll build his own church. William Beckford built his own church. He said, when I am talking to God, I don't want nobody listening to me. When I'm talking to my God, that is a private conversation. Nobody else must be in the church. This church is for me to talk to my God and nobody else in the church. Built his own church out of his profits. When he died, he left 320 million pounds for his son. And his son was only 10 years old. Keep going. Here we have the history of criminal enrichment. The royal family, the elite families, the banks, the insurance companies, the government itself. And you all have to understand that the government was also an owner of slaves. Huh? The government wasn't just collecting taxes and revenue. The government was buying and selling slaves and owning slaves itself. The Church of England. Church of England was a major player. Look at the elite families. These were the families that owned the slaves in the Caribbean uh, at the moment of emancipation. All of the leading families of Great Britain. The who is who of Great Britain still today. These families are still the leading families in England. Keep going. Now this, however, is an interesting image. These are the financial institutions that were investing and were receiving the compensation and the reparations for their slave properties in the Caribbean. Look carefully at the name of these companies. Because when emancipation came, these companies rebranded themselves. These companies changed their names and their identities. These companies reorganized their identities to go into the free period. And when they reorganized their identities, rebranded themselves, these are the names that you now know. The next slide. There you go. These are the banks that you all know. These are the banks that rebranded and renamed themselves. Barclays Bank. Royal Bank of Scotland. Nat Westminster, the Miller Bank. These are the banks you will see on every high street in Great Britain. 
And every corner you will see them. But these are the banks that renamed themselves from the earlier slide. Changed their names, but the history is still there. They changed their names. All of them have put, go back a bit. These banks have put on their websites, I see the Royal Bank of Scotland have now put something on their website. Well, yes, we were involved in slave trading and slavery 200 years ago, and yes, we have made some profits out of it, and so on. But it's not enough just to acknowledge it. Even Lehman Brothers in the U.S. have finally recognized and accept from the documentation that they were a major financier in slavery. But at least Lehman Brothers have recognized that and have now started to give scholarships in Mississippi and Missouri and all the states where they were owning slaves. Lehman Brothers is now putting scholarship funds for the empowerment and the education of young black people. At least they are taking some responsibility. Right? And many of the American companies are gradually taking responsibility for what they did. Not one British bank has yet said, okay, we acknowledge it, fine, but we'll go the next step and do something about it. That we became criminally enriched out of Caribbean slavery, and now here we are, the biggest institutions in Europe, and you walk away and say nothing. We have to encourage these institutions now to do the right thing. And they're not going to do the right thing until we encourage them. It's important we do that. Next slide. The Church of England, well, here we are. The priests were among the largest slave owners in the Caribbean. There you see St. Vincent, six clergymen were large slave owners here on this island. These were the slave owners who received compensation, reparations. So in St. Vincent, six clergymen received reparations for, uh, for the slaves they own here. Next slide. The person who received the largest compensation in the whole of Great Britain was the Bishop of Exeter. The Bishop of Exeter was the largest owner and investor, single person in Caribbean slaves. He owned slaves in Barbados, in Jamaica, in Dominica, in Tobago. He was a major investor in Caribbean slaves. And of course, the prophets went back to the Church of England. Many of the parish churches you see across Britain today, when you drive through Britain, you see in almost in every community beautiful parish churches, lovely, lovely facilities. Many of them were financed out of the Caribbean prophets. The money went back to the bishops of London. The bishops of London took the funds and dispersed to build these churches across, across the, uh, the parishes of, of Great Britain. The bishop was a great collector, and I was very pleased when the Church of England finally offered an apology to the people of Africa and the Caribbean. It was a great moment when the Archbishop of Canterbury acknowledged that an apology was due, and they did not issue a statement of regret. The Church of England gave a formal apology for their participation in slave trading and slave owning in legitimizing slavery, and in supporting the reproduction of the slave system. In Barbados, at the height of slavery in 1780, in 1780, at the height of the slave economy, the largest slave owner on the island of Barbados was a clergyman, the Reverend John Brathwaite, Reverend of the St. John Parish Church. 
was the largest slave owner on the island. 6,000 slaves ate plantations. But that is the history that we have to deal with now. And we have said, we have said to the Church of England that having given the apology, what they ought now to do is to come to the Caribbean, work with the Caribbean clergy, work with the churches in the Caribbean, and help us now on some of the moral and the ethical and the social issues in our communities. A lot of young people still have some problems that they need help with. The churches are doing a wonderful job in their communities, uh, helping with discussions about HIV and AIDS, healthy living, family values, all of those kinds of social outreach activities of the church in the Caribbean could now be empowered by a reparation strategy by the Church of England. And we've called upon them. We've called upon them to come back and participate in uprooting some of the legacies that you were responsible for. And it would make the Church of England a better church when it has done that, a better church. Next slide. This is the money that was paid out across the Caribbean as reparations to the slave owners. As you can see, Jamaican, largest number of enslaved Africans, the biggest share. Now, there are two sets of values here. The column in the middle is the value that the Caribbean slave owners put on their slaves. In other words, to get your reparations, you had to compute the value of your slave stock and send the accounts to England and they will compensate you. As you can see, the Caribbean slave owners inflated their values. <laughs> the British government sent down their own accountants. The British government sent accountants to all the Caribbean islands to verify the values that the Caribbean slave owners put on the value of the Africans. And you can see the Jamaican slave owners said, our slaves are worth 13 million. The British government says, no, they're worth six. And St. Vincent, the Vincentian said, our slave property is worth 1.3 million pounds. The British government says, no, your slaves are only worth 576,000 pounds. So in almost every case, the British government cut the value in half because this was a chance for the slave owners to cash in. On my plantation, I have 600 slaves. They are worth 50,000 pounds. I can cash in. Now, we have the records because we have the records for every island. The name, the name, the age, the sex, the place of birth of every Caribbean slave at emancipation, we have those lists. For St. Vincent, we have the full list. Because if you wanted your reparations, you had to put down the name of the person, whether they were born in St. Vincent, in Africa, wherever they were born. You had to put how old they were if they had any infirmities, if they had a broken hand, broken leg, if they had any scars, you had to put a physical description of everyone, the age. So we have a complete list of the Africans or the Caribbean black peoples in every Caribbean island at emancipation. And of course, how much they were worth. So all that documentation is now there. We have access to all of it. Next slide. The professors at London University have done a remarkable study on this, uh, Nicholas Draper. The British government has put together a project. They invited London University to carry out a study of all 
the slave profits? Who truly made the profits out of slavery in Britain? And where did the profits go? And how did the, how did the reparations that the slave owners receive, what did they do with this money? Professor Draper is on that team. I am a member of that team. There are seven of us who are on that team conducting this study for the British government. And what the study is showing thus far is that when the slave owners receive their 20 million pounds in 1834, which was valued at 40% of the government expenditure for that year, that money was invested in the British economy, in the railway industry, in industrial development, and the slave compensation money reinvested in the British economy placed the British economy in a booming condition and Britain had 50 years of economic growth as a result of that money. 50 years of growth stimulated by the compensation money, the reparation money which the slave owners got and plowed back into the British economy. So, here in the Caribbean, the islands were descending into poverty after emancipation and in Britain, 50 years of growth because the compensation money was reinvested back into the British economy and stimulated the economic development of the country. And what did the slave owners do? They raped the treasury. They said 40% of the British national expenditure for that year was paid over to the slave owners. 20 million pounds. In other words, I want you to imagine I want you to imagine 40% of a country's expenditure taken and handed over to the same parliamentarians who were the owners of the slaves. Take it from the treasury and give it to themselves. They then take it from the treasury and then reinvest it in their own industries to stimulate industrial development. And of course, the British government would have been bankrupt if they had to finance this by themselves. Where did they get the cash from? The British government borrowed this 20 million pounds from the Jewish community, the Rothschild's family. The Rothschild banking empire provided the loan to the British government to finance the reparations to the slave owners. And the Rothschilds raped the British government because they said, you have a cash flow problem, you want to pay reparations to slave owners, we will lend you at 12% interest. And they, they soaked the British government, milked them dry because they wanted the money for themselves. And that is how reparations was paid to slave owners. So coming to the end now, the British government built this system. They created fiscal policies to manage it. They created financial systems. They legislated slavery. They administered slavery. The government owned the slaves. And importantly, the British government is a custodian of the wealth of the nation. We believe that we now have to repair the damage. And this is the final point. This is why now reparations is important. What damages do we have to repair? Caribbean governments today are spending up to 70 or 80 percent of their expenditure on education and health. Why? Because after 300 years, the British have left Caribbean peoples illiterate and unhealthy. After 300 years of 
taking their labor, exploiting their labor and enriching themselves to build themselves into the most powerful nation on earth, they have left the Caribbean peoples illiterate and unhealthy. Which means that the governments today now have to clean up illiteracy and clean up the ill health. Do not have the resources to do it. I like to use Jamaica as an example. After 300 years, the British left Jamaica with 80% of its people illiterate. When Jamaica went into independence, when Jamaica went into independence in 1962, 80% of the people were functionally illiterate. And then you say to Jamaica, with their 2 million people, go and develop. There is no nation on this planet using any method of economic development that could transform a society with 80% illiteracy into a developed nation in 50 years. It is impossible. Because from the illiteracy springs a whole range of other conditions. From the illiteracy springs a whole range of other conditions that undermine the best thrust for development. You have to deal first with removing illiteracy. Then you have to move to deal with health because health and illiteracy are linked. We now have in the Caribbean an explosion of chronic diseases. We have 60% of the black people in the Caribbean over the age of 60 have hypertension or diabetes or both. Now, if you take the single criterion of chronic diseases, hypertension, high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, if you take that simple criterion, the black people in the Caribbean are the unhealthiest people on the planet. And you have to understand that. On the one hand, we are watching Usain Bolt and we are watching the Caribbean athletes. We are watching the Caribbean with an image of being the most athletic people on the planet. But beneath that image of these super sportsmen and women is the hard reality that we are now the sickest people on the planet. In every black family in the Caribbean, hypertension and diabetes is endemic and congenital. In my family, almost everybody over 60 has hypertension and diabetes. And it's the same for your families, for all of our families. There is an explosion of ill health in the Caribbean. And this is a legacy of slavery and colonization. You take you take a people, put them on an island for 300 years, give them salt fish and salt pork every day, overwork them, undermine them, sell their children, rape their wives, make them work 20 hours a day, overwork, malnourish, and take them through that stress, that stress profile of physical and mental terror. What you get? Hypertension and diabetes. It was the same then as it is now. When your doctor tells you to learn to relax, to learn to relax, take out your salt. Well, you can take out the salt, but your four parents couldn't take it because that's all they had, salt. And now the result is that black people in the Caribbean cannot metabolize salt and sugar. Because for 300 years, that is what you were fed on plantations plus the stress. So we cannot metabolize salt and sugar, and now we all have a salt and sugar problem, hypertension, diabetes. 
and we are spending millions of dollars to deal with this. Millions of dollars we are spending to fight hypertension, diabetes in the Caribbean that is going to be the number one economic crisis in this region in the next 20 years unless we find an answer to it. At the University of the West Indies, we've started to do this research. And I can share with you the problem that we're having. The drugs that have been used to treat high blood pressure, for example, have been clinically tried on Caucasian peoples because they are the majority in the markets. The drugs are 95% efficient on a Caucasian body because when you take a hypertension drug, what happens, the drug goes into your body. It sends a message to your cells to open up, to open up, let the blood come through. It sends a message, okay. When a white person takes that drug, the cells have a 90% response. When an African black person in the Caribbean takes that drug, we have a 70% response. So we are still dying at a faster rate. When you see people in the 60s and 70s having strokes and heart attacks because of hypertension, it is because the drugs are not working. They're not working as well as they should. Now, the important thing about this is that the drugs work on the Africans. The drugs work on the Africans as well as they work on the Caucasians. But they don't work on us because something happened to us. You see, so when an African in Nigeria and Ghana and so on takes the drugs, he has, she has a good response. When the European take it, they have a good response. But in the Caribbean and in the New World, the Africans over here don't have that response because something happened to us. Because we have been genetically modified during that slavery period. It doesn't work on us. And now we have to find out. So right now we are taking, we are taking blood samples. We are taking blood samples from people in Nigeria and Ghana and comparing blood samples with Barbados, Jamaica, St. Vincent and trying to find out what the differences are so that we can figure out why the cells of black people in the Caribbean don't respond the same way to, as Africans do. What has happened to us in the process? The stress profile of slavery for the three to four hundred years. And believe me, we have lost some very good people in the Caribbean over the years from heart attacks as a result of hypertension. People who really should be living longer. But let's say there are five or six drugs that we are using for hypertension. We've tried them. We've had individuals in our university community and we have moved them from one drug, it worked for a year, to the next, it worked for a year, to the next. And we've gone through all the drugs, and eventually the body starts reacting, and we're getting people dying of heart attacks. That should be alive. So slavery was not just killing you in the slavery period. 150 years later, slavery is still killing us at a faster rate. So when people say to you, slavery is over, it's in the past, you are now in the jet stream of it we are now experiencing the medical consequences of it. And that is devastating our governments and our economies and our families. Each time one of my great colleagues die of hypertension heart attacks, I shudder. Because I know that had that person been white, they would be alive because the drugs would have worked better for them. But we do not have the resources to do this work. We have approached the pharmaceutical companies and they have said to us, 
The black people in the Caribbean are only 5% of the world's population. This research requires millions of research dollars to have the drugs adjusted through biochemical research so that when the black person from the Caribbean takes it, they get the same response as anybody else. But it requires a lot of biochemical research. And we have started. But the companies that have the technology are saying to us, why should we invest in that research? And you're such a small population pool. If the Africans in Africa were having this problem, we would invest. But the Africans not having it. You in the Caribbean, you're having it. And you're too small a population. So we're back to square one. Who is going to pay for the research that is required to save your lives? Who's going to pay for the research to save your lives? And the lives of your families and down the through the years? It's terrific. I have lost people in my family in the 60s through hypertension caused by strokes, heart attacks caused by hypertension. People 60s, nobody should be dying of a heart attack by hypertension in the 60s. It's ridiculous. But this is now the Caribbean reality. All of these things. Is there a museum to slavery anywhere in St. Vincent? Is there one in Jamaica, Barbados? No. Right now, there are five state-of-the-art, digitally-enhanced museums in Great Britain where school teachers can take the children and see all of this history. You can go to Liverpool, Manchester, London, Birmingham, and you can experience all of this history in a digitally enhanced museum. School teachers can take the children. Can you take children in the Caribbean to a museum? Am I going to ask a prime minister to take $50 million and build a museum to slavery when we need to build more primary schools, more secondary schools, and fund the university? So who is going to do all of this? These are the kind of things that we speak about when we speak about reparations. The British government has to come to the Caribbean and sit with us, sit with us, and help us to deal with all of this. We have a legal and moral right. And the only way we're going to make that progress, and we give thanks to Prime Minister Gonzalez for encouraging his fellow prime ministers to see the importance of all of these issues going forward. And so please, I was sitting in the heads of government's meetings and being a part of the presentation of Prime Minister Gonzalez to the heads on this matter and realizing that there was a unanimous decision by the Caribbean heads following Prime Minister Gonzalez's presentation to take these matters forward. Because we need to take them forward. All of us need to take them forward. And if we do not, this region is going to regress and regress very, very rapidly. And it is not, it is not about confrontation. It is not about conflict. It's about a 21st century state of sophisticated diplomacy. A 21st century diplomacy is required. A 21st century international relations strategy is required. The time has come now in this second phase of nation building for us to go forward. I feel that this is where we're at. And I can tell you, reparations is not about handing over money to either individuals or governments. Under international law, reparations are paid into a fund which is, ad which is administered under international law. People like the gentleman here, members of the clergy, 
in every society, a reparations commission is established, a fund is established, and under law, those funds are placed in the hands of trustees. And trustees are held responsible for the use of those funds for community development. In Israel, the people who sit on the reparations fund are people in academia, people in the clergy, people in civil society, all kinds of people sit on that fund. And they have billions of dollars paid by the Europeans for the crimes committed against them. When the government wants to build a new university, it might approach the fund and say, well, could we have $50 million out of this fund because we wish to build a new university? We wish to convert desert into farmland. We wish to build 2,000 units of small income housing. Can the fund participate in these projects? That's how it's done. The money goes into funds on the international law, under the hands of trustees. And those funds are used for development. The state of Israel was able to modernize the agricultural sector. They were able to do the research on solar technology, how to convert the sun into energy. It was the reparations money that helped them to do that research for solar analysis. Now there's a solar energy industry. A lot of that was funded from the reparations fund. But we in the Caribbean, we are now on the cusp. And we have taken the first step. We now have to take the second and the third steps. And we owe this to our progeny. We owe it to our children, our grandchildren. We have now to take the issue of repairing the damage. Repairing the damage that has been done. And we believe that by urging the British government to come to the table to discuss these matters in an orderly fashion, that it will be in the interest of Caribbean peoples going forward. I thank you very much.